Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Cheers, Matt. Sorry what? to interrupt the big game. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah, I'm watching <laughs> watching the cricket. It's the first test, the West Indies and England. I'm not a fan of either country, so obviously I'm Australian. Aussie through and through. <laughs> through and through. So Look well. how green that grass is, though. Yeah. That's quite the sight as opposed to what we're looking at, which is obviously a beautiful view, but... Yeah, I've got my it's back Great Britain. to it purpose. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty ugly out there at the moment. Nobody likes the winter. And, uh, and uh, these guys are lucky. They're over in uh, the West Indies, the English cricket team, for about another two and a half months. I mean, imagine. All you got to do is play cricket and lie in the sun and swim and drink. And There's worse lifestyles, isn't there? Yeah. Is, Good to is, be a cricketer. Is the thing that you miss the most about home, the weather? Uh, yeah, the weather and the fishing. Yeah. Yeah, I think the um, obviously the Australian weather is uh, uh, probably overall the best you could find anywhere in the world, devoid of most natural disasters down there, a few fires here and there and a cyclone now and again. But uh, the weather is breathtaking, especially where I come from up in Brisbane. And you do get some quite tropical, intense storms and rain but then they're over in five to ten minutes aren't they like they're... yeah and uh as long as i well i left there when i was 20 that's 50 years ago and uh but uh, i've been back i've owned homes there ever since and um 
I think the number of really bad storms I've seen there, you could count on two hands over those 70 years. So uh, that's pretty good. Um, and, uh, and the fishing. The fishing is the best. The fish down there, seafood is amazing. Yeah, uh, I'd rather be fishing than anything else in the world. Really? So, Even the making records? Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, I think I've sort of reached that point where uh, I'd rather be fishing than making records. Um, not because I don't like making records, but because you just I really like fishing. I really like fishing, <laughs> and I don't like the music that's out there these days. So put those two things together. I'd rather be fishing right now, right now. But the music changes. I'll stop fishing. <laughs> no, I'm I'm still working my ass off. But uh, there was a band a few years ago that you worked with. I'm not sure what came of the project in the end because I know the girl Rebecca went, I guess, solo or into a duo. But Arcadian Kicks, who are a Birmingham band. Because I used to work on Kerrang! and I remember receiving a promo video and it was uh, obviously you get the little blurb on the sticker. Right. And it said I'll produce by Mike Chapman. Yeah, and that was uh, that was a band um, that uh, I came across on MySpace. Is that what it was that called? Was, yeah, back in the day. Yeah, MySpace. I, I say back in the day, well, eight years ago. <laughs> well, it was probably 10 or 12 years ago now, I think. And uh, just saw them do some tunes on there and thought I love this band, contacted them and ended up coming over and going to Birmingham. And uh, we all went to the countryside and made a uh, what I thought was a beautiful album and uh, had the best time together. Amazing kids, two Beckys, two Toms. And, um, and one of those guys, Tom, now works at the Birmingham Academy because I bumped into him recently, he promoted a show that I worked or yeah. was the venue manager or something. Yeah, and he's still a very good buddy of mine. They all are. Uh, we're all still very close friends. And uh, my Beckys, as I call them, um, are, have a band called uh, Eka now. Yep. And um, they're battling away. They make great music, and they're doing pretty well. Uh, they, If they could pop a hit, they'd do better. Um, matter of fact, we're seeing them uh, this coming weekend. And um, we stay in touch. Uh, and I always think with people that I've worked with in the past, as long as you're still friends, and most of the people I've worked with are still friends, there's always an opportunity down the line to go back in and do something else. So you never know. Did you and Nikki Chin remain friends? No. No? Well, we'll get to that. Let's not jump ahead. Let's go back first of all. Tell me about growing up in... Queensland, Brisbane, Australia, well, and I, your I, I grew childhood up, up there. I grew up in there. the 50s, so um, I was there when the business that we know today started, the rock and roll music industry. And uh, I was tuned to the radio, and I was a singer. And uh, 1955, I was eight years old, and... Uh, that year, 50, late 54 into 55 and 56, I used to sing on uh, children's radio hit parade shows. We didn't yet have television in Australia. It's sort of primitive, isn't it, when you think of it now? Um, <laughs> and not that long ago either. That's what's crazy no, about the way the world's advanced really. to such a crazy yeah, rapid it's, rate, isn't it? Exactly. Uh, technology is pushing us to the brink. But, uh, yeah, I sang on three different kids' radio shows. Uh, sang all the pop hits of the day and um, cut my teeth on those tunes in the music industry. And and from that point on, I was uh, dreaming about becoming a rock star or a rock and roll star. 
Was there any one particular performer that ignited that fire within you, or was it just the general feeling that that music gave uh, you? Well, it was the general feeling. Everybody was good in those days, and I loved everything. But I think if I was to focus on uh, um, any particular artists, it'd be the the obvious ones. Buddy Holly, probably at the top of the list. Elvis Presley, Buddy Knox. Um, but then a lot of other artists who only had a few hits here and there. Um, and I, I realized at that age that it wasn't so much the artists that I was listening to, it was the songs. And the artists that came with the songs I thought were great. But if that artist put out a duff song... You weren't going to forgive them because you love them. Yeah, I, I, it was all about the song. So it's an early appreciation for that pop formula and that three-minute gem. Yeah, and hooks and sounds. The set. I was always fascinated by the sounds of the guitars and the sounds of the drums. Um, the, those were the two instruments that caught my ears. And I realized that the groove and the rhythm that you could build with a particular guitar sound and a particular drum sound was what was making those records great. And Buddy Holly, I think, did that more than anybody at that point. Elvis did, too, on a lot of his early singles. And it was that, uh, that magic between the guitar and the drums. And then the bass and the keyboards, whatever they were, or the orchestras, they sort of just filled in the picture. But it was the groove and the and the vibe of the guitars and drums, which has stayed with me ever since. And my focus is making records today is still very much on those two um, elements, uh, which of course means that now that most people use computer drums on records, and most people do, and that human personality is void in a lot of cases, right? Yeah. And uh, and I miss that. I make records with real drummers still, and uh, I think it's important to the uh, the basic track of any great song to have that human feel. Uh, we've taken that out now, and um, I think a lot of things have happened as a result of that to sort of dumb down the. Uh, uh, the beauty of pop music now, the, the, the magic of, of just the little sort of off-beat or off-key things that happen when real people play together. The uh, idiosyncrasies of the players, right? That add their yeah. own flavor into the mix. Yes, and I'm lucky enough to have a lot of very good friends who are great musicians in London here. I had Clem Burke on my show uh -huh. a while back, and he's one of those guys that, even with a song like Heart of Glass, and we'll you know keep jumping around, I guess, throughout this conversation, but that's a song that, although it has that disco feel to it, it's still a very human, percussion-led track, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, when I did that track, and that was the first album I made with Blondie, with Clem and all the bods in that band... Um, the uh, the computerized element of that track was coming from a very primitive source, just a little Roland drum machine. And uh, 
I wasn't using computers, it was all done to tape. So the challenge with that was to get Clem and the rest of them to play along with this little beatbox, um, to not be intimidated by it, but to sort of be inspired by it, which was a bit of a challenge because this was a band that came straight off the stage at CBGB's. This sort of music was a bit foreign to them, but Debbie and Chris really wanted to go in that direction. And so we did. And, um, uh, creating some of those tracks, but well, that one in particular, Heart of Glass, uh, was a real challenge. You know, you'd, it'd be easy these days with uh, with a computer. Um, so I had to fight for that every inch. Uh, took forever to, to to cut that basic track. I mean, I think we worked on that song for a week every day. Because wasn't it originally in its demo form more of a reggae? Yeah, it had slower. A, had a it was a bit slower and it had a bit of a reggae vibe. And it was called Once I Had a Love, which I thought was a dreadful title. <laughs> and Debbie kept saying it, Heart of Glass. I said, just call it Heart of Glass, you know. And, and um, uh, but that, yeah, that, that, that whole album was at the, uh, we made that in 1978. At that point, uh, computers were in their very embryonic stage. So we weren't using computers, but we were using drum machines and sort of primitive forms of what's commonly used today. Um, so it was all experimental. Uh, and that whole Parallel Lines album was every track, there was a lot of experimenting and uh, it was a challenge. Uh, but it, the songs were so great. And I just go back to the songs again. Um, you know, I, I when they played me the songs for that album, and most of them were just bits of songs. They weren't real full songs. We had to do that in the studio. But everything they played me reminded me of how good pop music can be. The melodies were great. The lyrics were creative and fascinating. And then, of course, you stick Debbie Harry's voice on top of that and her attitude, and um, you've got pure magic. But this is pre-computers, and still all of us fighting to get the best human performances. I think what's interesting about that band as well, because I'm fascinated with that area, uh, area, uh, era and period in time, is right. that they were almost, without being too derogatory, I guess almost like the butt of that whole CBGB scene, weren't they? They weren't the ones that did show any promise of becoming initially this you know, internationally successful hit band. Yeah, they, they were, were almost like a sixties kind of. Yeah, they were very stylized uh, as a result of Debbie and Chris's great passion for the sixties girl groups, the, the Ronettes, et cetera, et cetera. And um, so, yeah, their, their music, their music was fairly. Um, it didn't have a great dimension to it, but it was good in its own area. But there were other bands around at that point that were being a bit more creative. And I, I saw it as a great opportunity to actually take a band that considered themselves a punk band, which they weren't. I think that was Clem's yeah, view yeah. of it. He's the punk than, rocker in there. Yeah, yeah, more than the, the rest of them. Uh, and uh, I took a great deal of pride in being able to show them 
how to get the same kind of attitude that you put into punk music into pop music. Um, and parallel lines really set us up for then the next two or three albums after that. Uh, and it was just full, jam full of great songs. Um, and every track had its own magic performance value. And um, there wasn't a bad track on that record. It was really one of those albums that you can listen to and say, I love that whole thing. And uh, it doesn't happen that often. It doesn't happen to me that often to be able to have work with a band where you know that every track ha is significant. Them and The Knack as well both obviously have this Buddy Holly influence and they've right. obviously both covered Buddy Holly. Right. And so was that something that you bonded over with both those bands? Was that love? No, of... it was pure coincidence, really. really? That the, Yeah, the, that uh, Debbie and Chris... Uh, just happened to love Buddy Holly and I happened to love Buddy Holly and they were my age. Debbie was older than me. So they'd grown up with that music like I had. Uh, with The Knack, um, they were a little younger than I was. and uh, But Doug Figer had grown up with all of those Buddy Holly records and then the Beatles records, which made a, a huge impact on him. Uh, so it was really a coincidence with both those bands. There was a Buddy Holly ingredient, yeah. Just that generational thing, I guess, because nowadays it's hard to really appreciate the importance and significance and impact of people like Elvis Presley, Buddy Holly, the Beatles, because back then they were larger than life, like yeah. generational defining exactly. and even, superstars, weren't they? Yeah, and uh, Elvis was, well, he was gone too. He died in 77. 77, it was, yeah, yeah. yeah. So they, they were both gone, but their music was still considered top of the, uh, the pile. You know, this was the music that if you had an influence, that was a cool influence. Yeah. Um, these days, I don't know what's going on. You know, it's like, <laughs> uh, that's why I said, you know, give me a fishing rod. Um, I, it, I, I think that influence, musical influences are so important to any young musicians um, starting out in this business. And I'm scared these days that most of the young musicians who are putting bands together, the kids who are in their early to late teens uh, and whatever, you know, even into their 20s, are not hearing that music that I was exposed to and that the Blondies and the Knack and, uh, you know, that 70s generation was exposed to. Uh, and I think that that, uh, I mean, I frankly find pop music to be extremely boring at the moment. And uh, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that the influences of the people who are making, or the, the influences that the people who are making music today had are all the wrong influences. They're, they're listening to the wrong music. Hey, I could give them a list of things to listen to and improve their attitude. Yeah. I think the broader the pool of influence you're drawing from, the more original your yeah. input into the canon of pop is going to be, isn't it? Because you're yeah. piecing together various different things which might not necessarily be linked together, but in your head you've appreciated and enjoyed various strands of the the tree, as it were, and then you pull it all together and repackage it in your own way, and that's really the secret and genius of great pop, isn't it? It is, and, I, and I, I've never been scared to... Uh, put my influences on display in records that I've made or songs that I write. 
I uh, I think that's all part of pop music is taking bits of everybody else's work and putting it into your own and creating something of your own. But you have to have those influences because coming up with something new, I mean, that's completely never been heard before. Okay, it might happen. Somebody might create music that we we might listen to and go, I've never, ever heard anything like that in my life before. I hope that I'm the guy that hears that band that does that. Yeah. But it's hard to imagine anybody uh, anybody could possibly do such a thing. Um, and if you're drawing your influences from a small pool, then you're not going to have... Uh, I don't think you're going to have a lot of depth in your music. You know, you, it's, it's going to be a bit, a bit tame. Barney, uh, Maddie's friend, pointed out once to me that one of the last people to do that truly was Mike Skinner from the streets. Right. And he said, the f- and Prodigy, I guess, were another band of that sort of style, but the generation before. And that was genuinely brand new. Yeah, and it was great stuff. And, and, and we listen to that still, the, those acts and what they were doing. And we go, wow, that was good. Thanks yeah, very well, much, Maddie. Sorry, I'm trying to be so quiet. It's okay. You don't need to be. Thanks for being the host with the most. But, uh, yeah, um, it, you know, please God, some more people with that kind of creativity come along soon or I'll be fishing. You won't find me. <laughs> so what brought you over to the UK? Was it a pursuit of a career or did you just feel like a change in your life and new horizons? And- well, when I, I finished school when I was 17 and uh, I was for three years after that in the theatre and acting in, oh, really? in Brisbane, yeah. Right, I was right. working in a couple of different theater restaurants doing melodramas. Any productions of note? Uh, well, I did uh, Sweeney Todd, and nice. uh, we did our own crazy versions of yeah, these. Yeah. But at, at with, with music? Yeah, yeah with yeah, yeah. a certain amount of music, a uh, piano player in the audience, and uh, people throwing peanuts at us. And <laughs> so it, was, it wasn't necessarily part of the show, but... <laughs> well, no, but it was all part of the vibe. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and I, I loved acting, and I, my second choice, if I couldn't make it in the music business, was to be an actor. And, to, and I was... All of my teens was in amateur theater and did a lot of work with the Brisbane Arts Theatre. And uh, so for three years after I left school, I sat around waiting to see if I was going to get sent to Vietnam. Oh, right. Yeah, because... Uh, so the draft was in place in Australia as was, well. It was, and they were pulling numbers... I never knew that. ...pulling numbers out of a barrel, and basically... That's, until, again, something that's so far removed from, well, certainly my generation's yeah. experience, isn't it? Yeah, well, I was... Uh, 1964, I was 17 years old, and the war, the war was really getting revved up, and the Aussies were sending lots of 18, 19, 20-year-olds over there, and uh, they are getting their heads blown off. Um, kids I knew went over there. Some of them didn't come back. So I couldn't leave Australia until I turned 20. I was, for those three years... My number, my birth date went into that barrel. You're biting your nails constantly. Yeah, I mean, I I didn't know if next week I was going to be sent off to Nam. Uh, fortunately for me, and probably for the Viet Cong too, <laughs> I'd, I'd have been an animal in the jungle. <laughs> I didn't. Uh, I my number didn't come up. I was lucky, and so I got a letter uh, my twentieth birthday. 
April 13th in 1967. Um, it said, uh, you are now free to travel wherever and whenever you wish. So I booked it. I didn't know where I wanted to go. I just had to get out of Oz because I, I knew that the world was much bigger than Australia and I wanted to be a star. I, that's all I thought about was I got to be a star. I know a few musicians from that part of the world and it's an interesting juxtaposition because a lot of British people dream of escaping to Australia and right. rooting and moving there and it's yeah. almost like the you know the dream exile it's crazy, scenario isn't it, isn't it? but yeah. then everybody who's there I think especially if you want to work in the entertainment industry you're aware of how small and removed yeah. Australia is from the rest of the world in that regard and it's such a hustle isn't it and there's so few bands that actually remain in Australia and transcend, you know, Wolf Mother no, no, in excess. There's only uh, a few examples, isn't there? I that? don't, I'd, I'd be tough, I'd be uh, challenged to, to find one good example of that, I think. I mean, who, Slim Dusty, the pub with no beer. Um, it's, if you wanted to make it and you were a teenager in Australia and you wanted to make it in the world, you had to go to the world. And yeah. Australia is not part of this world. It's millions of miles away. And um, so anybody who felt like I did, all they wanted to do was get the hell out of there and, uh, and head to either L.A. or London or New York. London was the number one choice. Was that for the music scene specific to that city at that time for you? And, yeah, and what and would have been the well? I loved the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. So and everything, UK, yeah, everything that came out of the UK. I I loved all the music from America too, but it seemed like London made sense, and it was easier for me to get a visa to come to London. So uh, I ended up leaving there. Did you come over here without a job or any prospects no, or opportunities? No, or? I just started cleaning windows and washing dishes and painting houses and breaking into um, those uh, little shilling machines that run your gas in the rooms. And uh, so I did everything and anything for three years. But as soon as I got here... Were you writing music that whole time? Uh, I only just started writing when I, was, when I first arrived in London. I'd never written a song in my life before that. I just wanted to be a singer. And I had my guitar... And uh, so I, I joined a band in 1967, at the end of 67, a group called the Downliner Sect, who were an old uh, established sort of rock and roll blues band that actually played on stage alongside people like the Rolling Stones back in the mid-60s. And I joined them as their singer. I stayed with them for about six months. Were they a little bit older than you? They're or- a bit older, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was the kid in the band. I was You're just, the new blood. Yeah, I was just 20, and uh, they were like 23, 24, 25. Um, and then shortly after that, that sort of fizzled out, and then I came across a band called Tangerine Peel that were looking for a new singer uh, by various diff- different means, the manager tracked me down. I was working at Selma Musical Instruments on Charing Cross Road, selling guitars at that point, the last 
musical job I had before I entered the music business for real. And um, and were you dealing with any stars as customers? Yes, yeah, I yeah. was. Who, absolutely. Who was coming in to buy guitars? And you? not just stars as customers. Yeah, I mean, it, it, just about everybody who was anybody came into that store. And all the other guys that worked there were all in bands. And I was the kid in the store, apart from one other kid who was the lad. He used to sweep the floors, and that was Paul Kossoff. And Paul Kossoff, of course, went on to be... Paul Kossoff of Free and uh, one of the greatest guitar players this country's ever produced. And uh, so he and I were good buddies. I used to go see him with his Black Cat Bones, his band before Free, hang out at their rehearsal. So I was like burying myself in the business in London. I used to go to Sunday night at the Savile every Sunday night in late 67 when I saw every band that was anything at the time. Did you see Hendrix? I did, indeed. Yeah. I saw Hendrix, I saw The Who, I saw The Bee Gees, I saw Vanilla Fudge, uh, the list goes on and on. Yeah, I saw Everyone, Hendrix. basically. Yeah. Everyone, yeah. yeah. They all played Saturday Night at the Sapple. And I went to every show. And um, so by then I was, Tangerine Peel was making records. I was writing songs for them, for us. And uh, we cut an album, a dreadful album, but we made an album and we were signed. We had two different, three different record deals. Started off with MGM Records, put out a single. Then I think, um, I started with CBS Records, a single for them, then MGM. And then finally RCA Records, who released our album. And uh, at that time, 1969, I was working in a club called Tramps in London as a waiter. What a great name. Yeah, <laughs> Tramp. Yeah. So I was a waiter in there and uh, ran into this character who turned out to be my business partner for a number of years after that, Nicky Chin, who was a uh, uh, well-off layabout kid with nothing better to do than go out and dance every night. Very badly, too. He wasn't a good dancer. <laughs> And uh, so, so what was the draw when you met him? Did you see an opportunity for yourself like this guy could facilitate my skills? No, no, no. He saw an opportunity in me. Right. Yeah. That's how that He can started. ingratiate himself within the music industry in a credible way by yeah. backing your... Yeah, he saw himself as a songwriter and he could hear that I was... I used to take my demos in and the DJ there would play them before the crowd came in and they, yeah, this is good stuff, Mike. And, and that would be just you playing everything, would it? And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he heard that. So uh, that's how that started. And and then I left the band at the end of 69. And uh, then 19, end of 69, early 70, started getting real serious. And that's just before the glam rock explosion. Glam rock really or didn't it- start until 72, 73. Or 72. And T-Rex, would they have been the well, first, you think? Well, yeah, of- but T- T-Rex and and T-Rex and T-Rex um, David Bowie were both making great music, but they weren't sort of full-on glam yet. Yeah. So that took another year or so to sort of become what it ended up being, and then it just got more and more over the top and the whole glam thing just became quite ridiculous in Mm -hmm. the end you know which is when i left it 1975 so who was the first star 
that we now know as a star that you teamed up and worked with? What was the first hit that you wrote and got involved uh, with? Well, I um, had a band called The Sweet. We had a song or two that we didn't know who to record with and then came across a guy who had a band that he had worked with and he said, this guy Phil Wayneman, he said, well, I've got this band Sweet. They could come in and sing on it. So we cut a track with various different studio musicians and they came in and sang on that track and that song was called Funny Funny and that was 1970. And um, that song became the first legit hit that I had. And then the, um, the relationship with Sweet just sort of built from there. I love that band and they're one of those bands that I think transcend that time period because without them arguably there would have been no Motley Crue for instance oh, yeah, and no, Nicky Six is very vocal about his appreciation yeah. of them. Uh, can we talk about the Ballroom Blitz writing yeah. that? What a monster of a song that is. Yeah somewhere I have a demo I, I can't seem to track it down anywhere these days but it's lying around somewhere. I've th I think if you were to hear that demo it would surprise you. A demo I did on my little Revox tape machine, just sound on sound, like overdubbing till it sounded too ratty. And uh, my demo, pretty much, just me banging on my guitar. I was banging on my acoustic guitar for drums. And then, yeah, I did all that on a, an acoustic guitar with a pickup on it cranking it through a little uh, Fender amp for the guitars, did all the vocals myself. And um, we'd had a few big hits by then. And I cranked out this demo of Ballroom Blitz. And uh, that was probably the only song that the suite heard and said, we love that. The rest of them, they're like, we can do better than that. I knew they couldn't, but... Is that because they saw themselves as this heavy or credible, quote-unquote, right. rock and roll, like rock band? Yeah, their heads were into... And they were into, like, oh, this is pop music, that's not us. Yeah, their heads were more into, uh, I don't know, like Deep Purple. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Right? And um, my head was never into that kind of music, although I liked the vibe of it. I, I, I was into the songs. Yeah. It was all about the songs. And um, well, smoke on the water. What a boring song that is! It's a yeah. great riff, great yeah, riff, but not the much song. of a song. Right? <laughs> now the riff is what it's all about. Yeah. Um, but the sweet, after they'd had a few hits, they understood that hey, it's not bad to have hits, you know. Yeah. Well, anyone I think might have the most lofty of intentions when it comes to that artistic credibility. But yeah. then the second you get a bit of success, you're like, well, that's surely what you do it for. Yeah, right. you want people to hear I, your music. You want right, to... and I and I, I, to me, it was all about melodies. It was about words and quirkiness, um, and they had great harmonies. Yeah, uh, and they were a great band. I mean, Sweet were a legit rock band, and I I can understand their frustrations to a certain extent. Although I used to say to them, "Look, you, you know, your chances of success of being the next Deep Purple." Or a lot less than if you have a hit with Funny Funny or Wigwam Bam or yeah. Little Willie. Uh, 
I know these songs are crazy. And then we, we had early songs like Coco and Papa Joe, which it was me that actually forced the band on their then producer, Phil Wayneman, telling him, you can't use studio musicians. You've got one of the best bands in town here. You, these guys should be playing on their records. Oh, no, it's too much trouble. No, it's not. This is, I'm out of a band. I know what it's like to be treated this way. I fought for their rights there. And they became uh, such great musicians over those two or three years. And then when, by the time we got to Teenage Rampage and Ballroom Blitz and... Blockbuster. Blockbuster. Um, by the time we got to those tracks, these guys could play the ass off any rock band in town. So they, at that point, they realized the value of being able to play stuff like Ballroom Blitz, Blockbuster, which had an edge. They still, for me, sound as anarchic and frenetic and unhinged as anything that punk produced. Yeah, no, it, it, no it absolutely and was. It, it absolutely was. I think that um, it's complicated. The, the, uh, the press are never kind to people who are having commercial success. The press, uh, which I condemn them for. Yeah. You know. Fuck them. Yeah. I'm not the press. No, I'm not. <laughs> no, I, re I really am. I'm not a fan of, of the average pop journalist. There's always an angle, isn't there? And right. it's basically essentially to make a name for themselves as a... They, they put my music down. They trampled all over it. They said it was the worst shit they'd ever heard. Well, the... I knew From it. early on, right the way through. Right. The, Even all, with parallel all, lines and like a... No, no, no. By then, they'd... Right, but but throughout the mid-70s. Yeah. Yeah. They couldn't handle all this this hit after hit. I mean, I was I had the top three records in the same week. I read week. that you had 19 top 40 singles in one year. Yeah. Between 73 and no, 74. No, I, I absolutely did. I, I uh, wrote and or produced and produced. 50 top 20 records in the, those five years between 1970 and 75, which was pretty phenomenal. I didn't think about it at the time because I had a responsibility to three bands. And you're busy and you're distracted with work. Yeah. You're not I'm, sitting back and lauding it and going. I was trying not to read the reviews. You know, They were slamming me. They were telling me I was a waste of time and this crap and what is all this stupid music about what in their mind was the the credible good stuff at that point then <sighs> you know, what was, should you have been doing in their eyes it's hard to Pink say Floyd because like that. well i guess so it's it, it's a bit hard to say because they they were still sort of caught up in the 60s everything should have a social message right yeah. and then when punk or before punk when glam rock came along it was based on frivolity and my lyrics were bizarre and weird i mm -hmm. mean nobody who writes a song called ballroom blitz mm -hmm. and if you listen to those words i mean i wouldn't write those words now i was a 22 23 year old kid i don't think anyone would write them now because culture's changed so much hasn't it yeah but the 70s was a very bizarre time yeah and it was it? experimental which was great for pop music because all of us mark boland david bowie Sweet. Roxy Music. Roxy amazing Music. Amazing band, yeah. Right. 
there were Roy Wood. We were all really reaching out and and trying to. We were trying to do better than each other. We were trying to like he's weird, but I can be weird, mm-hmm. you know. And as you were saying earlier, there's a point when that went too far. Yeah, but there's that peak pocket period. Well, I where- saw that coming. Um, in 1975, and I'd already been the previous year in 74 to L.A., and I'd never been before. And when I got to L.A., I thought, aha, this is more like it. What, what did you see out there? I just, I don't know. I just felt something different there. And I guess it had something to do with the weather. It had a lot to do with Sunset Boulevard and uh-huh. all those clubs. Band-wise, what was uh, going I, on? I, not nothing that really it wasn't even the i was listening to the radio there and 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 listening to more adult style music and getting off on that and stevie wonder and uh um the eagles mm-hmm. yeah uh, yeah and that to me was more interesting because i just had in 74 i had four solid years of this glam rock stuff and all I all I did all day was sit in a room and write songs, and, and then go to the studio gold. and make them. <laughs> yeah, because I I didn't have time to do anything else. Yeah. I, you so know, you weren't experiencing life. You weren't. I wasn't. No, I I was just too busy. What was the the demands that were being made on my my skills were like a little overwhelming. I couldn't do that now. I, I, I come up with ten top ten hits in a year. How do you do that? But I did. Uh, because I just, I was so focused. But by 75, and I'd tasted L.A., and I'd heard the radio there, and, I, and I'd not had the sort of success in America that I'd had here and around the rest of the world, and I was envious. Was Susie big in the States, or was she bigger no, in the U.K.? she was, we had Obviously a Obviously Happy Days later on, she became yeah, that was later a different on, but kind we, of a star. We had sort of a hit with Can to Can and 48 Crash, but... Clive Davis was the record label, you know, and even Clive couldn't break it. it uh, none of those, none of those records were making it in uh, in the U.S. Was that anything to do with her sex? And the no, fact that at that point, there no, were it had any, nothing to do with that. All it, it, it had everything to do with a, just a very different musical culture, right? And when I as first, you say more adult political, yeah, experimental. more musician based, more. It's hard for me to describe it. It was a feeling I, I understand. Had. But yeah, I was... Like an album like Inner Visions. Yeah, and what, exactly. what's going on there. Yeah, well, you know, when you dig into the depths of something like that, you realize that, whoa, this is a musician. Yeah. You know, th- this is somebody with skills that are way beyond mine. And I, I was envious of people like him. And, uh, and I thought... I can make music for this market. I shouldn't be sitting in England just cranking out these teeny bopper anthems. Yeah. yeah. I should be in America contending for these, for the top of the American charts. So that was what inspired the move. That's what inspired the move. And, uh, and LA is initially where you set a base or was yeah, it? Yeah, no, York? 75, I moved to LA, bought a house in Beverly Hills, got married to a one of those Hollywood model slash actresses just to complete the picture yeah 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 had to have that yeah 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 and uh and and then set 
got to work. I left everything here behind. I was so fed up with this horrifying relationship, business relationship I had with the ex-partner. And getting slammed in the press. And, and getting slammed in the press. And a, and a band like Sweet, who never really appreciated what I was doing for them, Susie did, Mud did. And I'd also, at that point, as I said, I'd heard the Eagles, and I wanted to make records like that. In 74, when I came back from there, I set about finding a band that could make that kind of music with my songs. And that's when I found Smokey. And so when I moved to America in 75, I'd already started Smokey on their, uh, in their career. I'd written, If You Think You Know How to Love Me, and that was a hit. And then by the time I moved in, I think it was April 75, I was well underway with Smokey. And, uh, and I said, that's it for the sweet mud. Not Susie, that was different. We kept working together. But with those two bands, I said, I can't do any more for you. I, I can't make that kind of music anymore. It's, I've, I've got a new... Uh, calling. A, yeah, I wanna, a, yeah. yeah, brand new calling. That's when I found a band called Exile out in Kentucky. When you moved to America, and sorry if it's a touchy subject, but you and uh, Nicky Chim, when you moved to America, are you then basically going, I'm getting rid of that guy as well? And trying yeah, to no, I, him one, of the, one of the beautiful things about it was I was getting my freedom. I mean, this guy had me, you know, tied to a, a chair in his apartment writing songs, you know. Because of the legally binding contract that you were no, in? No, there or? was no contract between right. us. It was just his uh, mentality, and he was surrounded by some very powerful people. He was yeah. from a very powerful family. I was just a stupid kid with a guitar, and he took advantage of me 100%, and he sat me down, and he said, just keep writing those hits. Did you have and, a 50-50 deal, or did he uh, take advantage of you in that, that No, we had a 50 well? Yeah. Yeah, and as long as his name was first on everything, uh, he was happy. Right. He was very rarely in the studio. He didn't know anything about record production or songwriting, for that matter. So I was producing the records, and they were going out produced by Nicky Chen and Mike Chapman. Anyway, I don't want to get into that because it makes me angry. Uh, but yes, I got rid of that piece of shit, left him behind, and what do you think happens? 1976, he moves to LA, <laughs> no. buys a fucking house three doors up from me on the same street. Really? <laughs> you, Sorry you, to laugh. No, That's can you bizarre, imagine being that kind of person where he was so desperate and he used to go in and out of psychiatric wards every time I'd tell him to get lost. I don't want you in my life anymore. He'd have a nervous breakdown, play on my emotions. I was a sensitive kid, you know? If it was me today... I'd have fucking shot him. I'd have bought a gun and shot the motherfucker. You know? <laughs> but uh, so he he was obviously a a troubled individual as well. He wasn't just a, an overbearing asshole. There was stuff no, going was on troubled. with him as well. I mean, the the one thing that he did, which I didn't want to do, was he was dealing with the record company. So his right, right, part right. in the in the partnership That's was purely business, one hundred percent business, and. Because he was putting his name on all those songs, which I was writing, uh, he'd sit and cross a T and dot an I. I mean, I won't tell you all the stories. It's disgusting. Um, because he was, he, he was manipulative. He used his family's power over me. Uh, 
he just did everything that nobody wants to have done to them, to me. Right. Um, took advantage of my skills and my talent, my naivety. And generosity. Yeah. And, uh, and I thought I got rid of him in 74, 75, but uh, no, there he was on the same fucking street. Hence the move to New York. Yeah. And, <laughs> Literally. Uh, yeah. And really? I, so I just kept running and he kept following. And uh, eventually I was able to say, look, you know, we can keep this partnership going as long as I am credited for what I'm doing. He continued to stick his, names on my, his name on my songs to uh, uh, right through the 70s. Um, but by the time I came across... Uh, Blondie and The Knack, and I was working with Exile. He had nothing to do with that. And I was finally free. And then we started a record label because he was such a pest. I said, well, here's, a, here's an idea. You're such a genius. We'll start a record company. You run the record company, Dreamland Records. Sign some acts. Just let me make the music, write the songs. You run the record company. He spent $5 million in a year, and the company went under. I was never happier in my life. Took $5 million of Polydor Records money and he buried it because he was inept and incapable of anything worthwhile. And uh, so I was so happy. Then you were liberated. Yeah, because I said, there, I gave you a chance. Yeah. And, and it could have been different if he'd have actually had any skills or. Uh, yeah, if, I'd, if he'd had skills. I mean, you know, but, you know, when you're, when you're a songwriter, and somebody's crossing a T or dotting an I on your songs and then putting their name before yours on the credits and claiming to have written half that song. And for the rest of my life, he's making half of my money, which is not nice either. But when you're a songwriter, you don't want things like that to happen to you. That's not nice. Well, I've always thought, even on my lowly level, if I can draw an analogy, is for me, that side of it kills the creative side. You just want to be yeah. doing the, the pure craft. Yes, exactly. And you don't and, want to be bogged down by Right, and I was very fortunate that I was lucky enough right through the 70s to be working with Mickey most. And Mickey was my savior because he was my mentor. And he, uh, he could see how skilled I was. All those, most of those records, apart from Sweet, came out on Rack Records, his label. Um, and he was a pillar of strength for me. And, uh, and integrity. Yeah, and he and he was the best record producer in the world. I just wanted to be as good as he was, uh, and uh, he helped me enormously. Um, then I was lucky enough to meet Terry Ellis and Chris Wright, who owned Chrysalis Records. Hence the work with, with. I mean, I made the first five number one records Chrysalis ever had. You know, with various different acts. So that relationship was breathtaking and fantastic. I was lucky enough to work with people like Richard Branson at uh, at um, Virgin yep. Records and uh, Chris Blackwell at, at uh, Island Records. So I love the story of that label. Yeah, like, what yeah, an amazing story, isn't it? Right, and everyone I, from Tom Waits to yeah, just incredible. Those Drake were the, and- those were the great record. Guys, yeah. this is what I said to Nicky Chin. You think you're a good record? Here's a record. Yeah, a roster that it, sets right? our stall up. And... He didn't have those kind of skills. So, but being having the good fortune to work with uh, with Mickey Most 
and Terry and Chris at Chrysalis Records, and then Clive Davis and people like that, really, really made me grow up fast. And uh, and starting around 1977 and onward, uh, I had my freedom. I could do whatever I wanted to do, and uh, and I was having fun. And um, which leads me to my next topic. You're in for me the cultural vortex of the world at that point in time. You had yeah. the birth of hip hop, disco, right. right, and punk rock, right, in the space of one year in one place. Um, and obviously, then as well, it was still a dangerous and dirty and exciting place to be uh put us in the picture of what new york at that point in time was like especially being in the business that you were in like right there well my first trip to new york was in uh 75 uh, late 74 susie quattro was touring opening for alice cooper on the welcome to my nightmare tour wow and she was the opening act yeah yeah i spoke to her about that when i interviewed yeah. her several years she ago she did yeah. the, the whole u.s tour and uh, she was playing at Madison Square Gardens, and Mickey and Chris, his wife, were coming over, and they said, Mike, do you and Connie want to come and see Susie? And I said, yeah, hell yeah. So we, we went to the show and saw that, and that was my first taste of New York. What an introduction. Yeah, and I just <laughs> moved to Beverly Hills at the time, so I was... Worlds apart, literally, right? culturally, everything. Yeah. yeah, completely different places. Um, but I could see what was going on in New York. So I You could just taste it and feel it, could yeah, you? Yeah, absolutely. And I went back to LA and I thought, wow, this is cool. I live in this amazing place, Hollywood, Beverly Hills. I'm able to make records here. The music here is great. Then I know about this other joint across the country, mm -hmm. New York City, where the music's completely different, just as exciting, and I can get there in five hours. How cool is this? And I basically at that point said, okay, I don't need London at the moment. So I said, I've got to focus on the U.S. And, and then my time was split evenly between L.A. and New York. And, uh, and I got to live that New York life with the Blondies, Studio 54, Andy Warhol, all the lunatics that that existed within that world. Who else? I mean, because there's such a long list of characters oh, from television and God. modeling. and on, on an average was, night it, of the week, who could you maybe hope to run into in there? Everybody and anybody. Like, just the, the personalities of that era. And, you know, when anything from Mick Jagger to uh, Andy Warhol to all of the fashion heads of the fashion uh, world in those days. Gangsters and criminals oh, as gangsters. well, yeah. Well, the two guys that owned the joint were gangsters. Yeah. And um, all those hot supermodels, the first of those supermodels, which to a young kid was pretty exciting. Uh, my wife didn't like that too much. <laughs> but, um, and uh, so I, 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 I felt like a pig in shit. I had... Uh, I had this five, six years of breathtaking success behind me in the UK. I didn't need to do any more there. I'd done what, it. All. How old are you at this point as well? Well, I was. Uh, Not even 30 yet. I was 20. Let's see. I, well, I went to uh, Beverly Hills in 74, so I was 27. 
And so, so I was 27, 28, 29 years wow. old. I wasn't quite 30. Wow. Um, and, and completely satisfied with everything I'd accomplished. I, I thought I, I couldn't be happier. I've had 60 or 50 or 60 top 10 records of around the world, dozens of number ones, uh, songs that, as it turned out, would live for decades afterwards. Well, forever. Yeah, well, hopefully, hopefully. As long as we live. And, uh, <laughs> and so now I had this wonderful opportunity of America, and I had Smokey. I thought I was going to break him in America. I never did until I had a hit with Stumbling In with Chris Norman from the band with Susie Quattro. But Smokey turned out to be more successful around the rest of the world, even than Sweet or Susie or Mud. I had more, I was selling more records with Smokey than I had, and these were records I was making all over Europe, in America, in LA. Um, so I was building all of these different influences into every song I was writing for Smokey and every track I was cutting. I was working with Jimmy Haskell, the greatest string arranger of the day, guy who did the strings on Bridge Over Troubled Water. I really, and wow. He Grammy-winning arranger. He was my buddy, and he did the strings on all of those records for me, all of those arrangements. So I was living in a whole new world. I became very good friends with Barry White, who recorded in the same studio that I recorded in in L.A. He was in one room. I was in the other. So we hung out together. The Walrus of Love. Yeah, well, he was amazing. And I, uh, and I, got, I was influenced so much by the music I heard coming out of his control room. I'd go in and rip it off every day, you know. Was he one of those Stevie Wonder-type scientists in the lab, as well as having that voice and that soul? Yeah, he was a genius. A, yeah, Barry was a genius. He, well. he had his own style. He's an amazing songwriter. Great melodies in his head. He had a great passion in his lyrics. Uh, he was a huge guy <laughs> and a very intimidating man, but a gentle giant as well. And, and he and I became, you know, like we'd see each other every day. Hey, Mike. <laughs> hey, Barry, how's it going? Good. How's it going in there? you know, this, this presence in the studio. So I was lucky enough to be around people like that and uh, for, for many years. And then in New York, I was out at the Mud Club, Petment Lounge, Studio 54, all of those, and then all the late night, late, late night places, hanging out with all the bands that were happening then, the Talking Heads and the uh, uh, B-52s. Yeah, Ramones, Devo. Ramones, Devo. All those bands, so left Lurie. field and out there, weren't they? Right, yeah. Uh, so it, what was your take on punk when, as that starts to happen? Well, I never, I missed the whole thing. I, right. I was just too busy making records there. It didn't happen in America like it happened here. And I was in America. I was either in L.A. or I was in New York. And I knew it was going on here in London. And I heard the records, but I, was, I, I wasn't caught up in that at all. I was so buried in work. I made one album after the other. I was in the studio 24-7 for three or four years there. And when I wasn't in the studio, I was out of my mind as Studio 54. <laughs> the drug intake, the drink. The, you were doing a lot of that, were you? Oh, yeah. There wasn't anything I wasn't doing. And, you know, pushing life to the extremes and trying to kill myself, basically, and go out with a, you know, in a blaze of glory with a string of 
amazing hits in my, <laughs> you know, as my yeah, uh, yeah. comet tail there. <laughs> and I didn't kill myself, thank God. Um, you know, after a while. Was it a dark scene? I know everything. Yeah, was, it was, it, was, it was disgusting. It was absolutely, it was depressing. There were days in the studio where, with the blondies, none of us had slept for three or four days. I mean, right. up constantly. Yeah, yeah. Making those records, though. Yeah. Making hits and looking at each other like, I don't even know who you are. They, they started looking like aliens to me, you know. We were so fucked up mega fucked up and then my marriage fell apart in 1979 right in the middle of making all these wonderful records so that fucked me up as well then the knack happened and they were a fuck up and that fucked me up even more did you ever do rehab or anything like that or did no you just no no i was clench your fist I, and hang on for dear life no i was a smart and tough kid and i just i quit all the bad stuff in the late 70s early 80s and said okay I'm headed for an early death unless I stop this. And, uh, and just focused on the music after that. And um, then in 82, I decided to come back to uh, the UK because I was missing it. And then I made uh, records with people like Altered Images, Bow Wow Wow, uh, a couple of unknown bands at the time. Um, Can I ask you as a little nerd of music about three songs in particular? One being Rapture. Uh-huh. Because I love the idea of black kids in inner city New York perhaps hearing quote unquote hip hop for the first time delivered by Blondie. Um, and obviously, the famous story is that they used to go to all those clubs where, you know, Fat Freddy and all that original right. scene was happening and then get inspired by it and incorporate it into their sound. How did that song come about from idea to inception? Well, we were well down the line at this point. This is after Eat to the Beat. So there's this like 81, I think, or 80. It's auto-American on that Auto-American, yeah. Two and a half, three years down the line. Um, And we had agreed, they had agreed to make this record in L.A. because I'd made the previous two in in New York. And I said, we're going to kill ourselves in New York. We need some sunshine. We need some sunshine. And and Debbie and Chris said, yeah, you're right, Mike. Let's let's go to to L.A. and, and... It'll be a different vibe anyway, and we need a different, a bit of a change here. So we made that at uh, United Western Studios in L.A. and various other places. Um, And was it a different vibe? Yeah, it was a very different vibe, yeah. And I had Jimmy Haskell doing the the extraordinary string arrangements on, uh, it was more of a concept album. Uh, Debbie and Chris were still a little fucked up at the time. Uh, I'd cleaned up my act to a certain extent. Um, and then Rapture, we had, the first thing they played me for that was they said, we got this reggae song, a John Holt song called The Tide Is High, and we want to cut this. And I said, let me hear it. I hadn't heard the song. And we listened to the record. I said, it's amazing. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, and so that was planned. We would cut that, and I knew that song was strong, and I couldn't wait to get my teeth into it to produce that because I knew that we could have a very special record it's perfect there. for their style as well isn't it it was and it also s- sat well with the sunshine in LA uh, and then the, the rest of the tracks on that album were very experimental what's the song before that song on the album it's almost like a 1920s jazz song oh 
I had Ray Brown, a legendary stand-up bass player on here's that looking track. Here's looking at you. Here's looking at you. Ray Brown's playing bass on that. Um, honey, here's looking at you. And it is. It's like an old yeah, prohibition twenties jazz track, isn't it? And, uh, and this was coming from Debbie. Debbie wanted to be creative, and I was like, I'll do whatever you want to do. You just lead the way. You know, I'm, She was my idol. I, I just couldn't believe I was lucky enough to be working with somebody who was that. Iconic as well. Oh, yeah. just breathtaking. I was the lucky guy to get to make the records, you know. And um, uh, so Rapture, though. Rapture, we all knew what was going on in the hip-hop scene, and uh, um, it was just beginning, really. Um, and Debbie said, we've got to do a track like that. I said, fine, what do you got? And uh, they didn't have much. It was really just, uh, I think she had the... The verse melody, no words. It was just the verse melody, and I said, "Well, how do you see the track?" And uh, we just got to work in the studio, all of us. Me sitting out there with the band with the guitar, and, and I ended up playing all those Nile Rodgers parts on that track because Frankie wasn't allowed at the studio anymore. The, the internal problems with the Blondies started to affect us, but. Um, we were uh, we just sat there and pretty much wrote it in the studio. That happened over the course of a couple of weeks of just trying different ideas. And, and she's essentially just freestyling. Yeah, and then she working out piece by piece came up with the various different parts for the song. And then when it came to do the uh, the rap, she said, I want to do a rap on this. I said, well, I'm sort of familiar with rap, but I'm not like an expert. Uh, can you give me an idea how it's going to go? Oh, I haven't written it yet. I said, well, where's it going to go? And we had this section of about 64 bars in the track that had nothing on it. She said, there. And I said, okay. And then the last thing we put down, I think, was that rap. And one day I said, Deb, it's time to do that rap of yours. She said, oh, okay. And she and Chris stood at the end of the console and just backwards and forwards with the words. In about 10 minutes, they wrote the whole thing, and she went out in two passes and rapped that rap. And that was how the record... And when she'd done that, I thought, oh, my God. And assumedly, you don't really know whether or not at that point that's even going to be accepted. No, I, I, I didn't know <laughs> what we were doing. I just yeah, thought yeah. it sounded great. Yeah. And I knew I had the tide as high all finished, mm -hmm. and I thought, that's a smash. Uh, and I knew that the rest of the album was creative and it was beautiful and Debbie was being spectacular. And Rapture was one of the last things we did because it took so long to put it together. Um, and until we put the rap on it, we didn't even know what we had there. And even after that, I'm listening to it going, well, you know, the great thing about working with Blondie was we, we felt we could do anything. And as long as we did it well, people would would appreciate it and that's what happened in the end i mean for that track to have then gone to number one on the billboard charts after the tide is high so we had two number ones on that album um with two totally different kind of songs yeah which would never have happened if we'd made the record in new york that that album auto american was born brought up and conceived in every way with that LA environment. Uh, and even that rap 
which although it was influenced by east coast exactly have probably been yeah recorded um, there yeah and and i mean that was a, a big changing time in the music industry uh and, and music couldn't have been more different in the uk and the us at that point either it was just two completely different things so you talk about punk music yeah i was so wrapped up in making all these american style records that that stuff that was going on in in the UK, I, yeah, I, I know it's going on. I don't have time to pay attention, so I, I really sort of I missed the excitement of the whole thing, you know. Uh, and then I met all the guys years later, and I I had seen a few gigs in the latter part of that whole event, but it came and went pretty quickly. That punk thing, yeah, 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 like eighteen months or so, yeah, at most, right, yeah, and it went, it came and went when I was at the busiest peak of, of my career, so. I mean, you can't do everything, I guess, you know, yeah, if, yeah, you're, yeah. if you're busy trying to create something for one market, something else might be happening somewhere else and you, you, you can't plug into it because you take your focus off what you're doing, you know. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're talking at the start of our conversation about the combination of guitar and drums. Right. And no song for me probably defines that better than my Sharona. Yeah, that's that's a classic drum and, uh, and bass. Uh, I mean, guitar and drum song the the drums make the record what it is and the guitar riff puts the icing on it uh the album version's different to the single isn't it yeah because i'd only listened to the album for the first time today it's a lot the way here yeah um again let's go through that song from initial idea to final product well uh, uh, do nothing you need much a drink before we continue as well yeah i do yeah? is that all right Matt? the host with the most but the, but this this is wendy's are doing quite well here Red too wine. yes thanks do you, want another vodka and blood do you have any beer no, no that's the one thing we that'll don't do have yeah. yeah no that's fine uh, I'll I'll one of those. Okay. thanks Matt. Well, 
Go on. Don't top you. yourself. <laughs> <laughs> this interview's depressing me. <laughs> the um, uh, Again, it goes back to that 70s school of what you were doing as well, if I could read into it in that way, that kind of nonsensical lyrics, quirky. Yeah, like, no, it was very much like that. But also, this band had played that whole album in for two years before I worked with them. Those songs were so re- well rehearsed. And like the, the, the Suite was a great rock and roll band. The Knack were a great rock and roll band. They were never given the credit they would do for their Well, they're, actual... they're perceived to be a one-hit wonder, aren't they? No, exactly. But... I was amazed by the quality of the material. Oh, the album. No, they, they, that, that Get the Knack album. The second one I made with them, the little girls understand, was a bit of a rehash of the first one because a lot of reasons. A lot of reasons. That's another story. But, <laughs> not a uh, good one, by the sound. No, not a, not a good one. But uh, but the Get the Knack album, when the record company called me and said, we've, we've got this band that we're about to sign, two companies called me. Uh, Warner Brothers called me first, and then Capital called me the next day. And they both said they're signing the band, and I... They both said the same thing. We want you to make <laughs> right, the album. Right, right. And I went, At least you know you're hey, getting work either way. This is yeah, interesting. Yeah. You're both signing? Anyway, they signed a capital. And um, when, I, when they put me together with the band, I went to see them play, and I was blown away. I went into rehearsal, and the first song they played me was My Sharona, and it sounded just like the record sounds. It didn't sound any different. I mean, as a producer, I had the easiest job in the world to do there. I just had to know not to change anything right which sometimes is the skill in itself I, right? it, it, just it's to respect absolutely that's one of the things as it is that's one of the things that you have to learn as a producer is is what to change and what not to change yeah sometimes it is just good enough exactly well when they played me my sharona they sort of stopped and i didn't say anything it was the first song in rehearsal and they went doug said you don't like it and i said I don't like it. I said, this, I'm dumbfounded. I said, that, that is a fucking monster number one song. And they said, you think so? And I said, are you kidding? Play it again. Oh. I said, mm-hmm. we've got our first number one. So whatever you play me after this is bonus. And uh, then they played me the rest of the tunes. And I said, let's get into that studio. We went in there with a budget of like $250,000 or something. Made the album in 10 days for 18 grand, and they kept the change. Mm-hmm. Nice. And the reason we did it so fast, made and mixed, was because a lot, so of it was, a lot of it was live. It was overdubs, obviously, but a lot of it was live. A lot of My Sharona is live. The solo was live. A lot of the lead vocals were live. I had Doug playing guitar and mic'd correctly, so I didn't miss a thing he was singing. It was his interaction between vocals and playing that made him sing that way, and I understood that. When he put the guitar down, he didn't sing it quite the same way. It wasn't so. as natural. Yeah, yeah, so I said, no, you're, you're playing and singing at the same time. Um, and, and that it was the easiest album in the world to make. It was fun. It was funny. There was wild, crazy things going on. Sharona was Doug's girlfriend. I really... 14 years old or 15 years old, completely illegal. <laughs> and uh, and the rest of the band hated her. And she was there all the time making comments. <laughs> and um, uh, But to me, it was like this bizarre scene. Like I yeah, got yeah. these four kids who think they're the Beatles 
the girlfriend and the other girlfriends are all like mid-teens. There's crowds of teenage girls outside the studio every day screaming when the band arrived. And I'm they're not there. even, and they're not even famous. They're yet. not they're even just, famous yeah, yet, yeah. and I'm in there going, "This is bizarre." And you're like twice as old as everyone at this point. Yeah, like, exactly. Going, the, yeah, yeah. And I'm, uh, and I'm thinking, how cool is this? And and it was the easiest record in the world to make. I mean, I didn't have to do anything. I just sat back and enjoyed it, you know. Yeah. And they kept saying, "Aren't you going to do anything, Mike?" I said, "What? What do you want me to do? <laughs> fuck just it up?" The madness unfold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want me to fuck it up? I'll <laughs> fuck it up. But uh, if you want a good record, just do it and let me just say thank you, you know. So uh, yeah, that that was that was a, a wonderful experience, and uh, and we became very very close friends, the, the five of us, the band and myself. Um, but then, you know, it all deteriorated as so many of these things do. <laughs> uh, and Mickey, Tony Basil, mm. um, what, again, the moment you heard that, did you instantly have that same reaction? Just well, that was a song clear. called Hey Kitty that I had oh, written. Okay. Uh, oh, you wrote that song just on your own? Yeah. Yeah, right, right, right. So it wasn't a song that they came to you with? No, no, I wrote the tune and I, and I gave it to Mickey Most, who was cutting this band, uh, uh, what are they called? Um, what was his band? That, that he had half a dozen hits with these kids in the late seventies. Some girls that racy, right? And I, I was in America. I never even heard. I was writing these songs and sending them to Mickey. He said, "I need another song, another hit for Racy." And I go, "Okay, I never even heard him, but is this any good?" Yes, that's perfect, Mike. Thanks. Oh, so meanwhile, while she's doing all this, you're literally just sending off the old... yeah to Mickey Mouse, right, right, and not even knowing where it's going, how it's I, I ending know, up. I never. Yeah. I wasn't listening to the radio here, and they yeah, were yeah. having top ten records, and uh, and so one of the songs that I wrote for him was Hey Kitty Hey Kitty what a pity you don't understand you take me by the balls when you take me by the hand so and uh, so he cut that with Racy and then the guys at Chrysalis a couple of years later or a year later had heard the song and they were starting to work with Tony Basil who was a choreographer she was working with uh, Madonna I think she was working with David Bowie she right. choreographed that tour at the time, the Bowie tour. And they said, we're going to make her into a pop star and we're going to cut this tune. So they cut it with her and it went to number one. And so when I heard that, I hadn't even heard the racy tune, Hey Kitty, and she changed it to Hey Mickey. So, and I guess she made the verse the focus rather than the chorus. Yeah, uh, which Almost. was fine with me because the, both the chorus and the verse were very hooky. And another one of those moments of just it's guitar and drum that yeah it? yeah it was just this and then they did that quirky video and that's one of those one off hits that I had that uh, I, mean, I don't even know how it happened it Wayne's just, World must have given it a whole new lease of life as well right like well, a decade later yeah and um, Ballroom Blitz was in Wayne's World yep. yeah 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 what's her name the um, Cassandra yeah yeah right doing that she can really wail yeah. So did you ever meet Mike Myers? Did you ever get to thank you personally? No, I wish I had. Uh, Still time. Still time. Yeah, I never thought about that. That's two key songs that almost define that identity of that film, don't they? Now, at the same time as that was happening, I had a call from Stephen Anderson, who was ABBA's manager in 1981, who said, and he was my publisher in Scandinavian territories for years and years, 
uh, so we knew each other well. And he called me, he said, Mike, um, and Yetta is going to make a solo album, and I'd like you to come over and meet with her because we would like you to produce the album, her first solo album. And so at the end of 81 or 80, end of 80, I think, they're all a bit of a mush to me now, uh, I went to Stockholm in the summer. No, it was in the summer of 1981, I think. I went to Stockholm and... Stig and Anietta and myself had dinner in this beautiful restaurant and laughed and talked and and Yetta and I got along like a house on fire and I said, so you want me to make an album with you? She said, oh, please, Mike. Yes, I would love that. <laughs> so I said, okay, book the studio. We're on. And at the end of that year, I went back there and went into the studio for four, almost five months, right through the winter with all the members, the players from ABBA. Michael Tretto, the engineer, did all the ABBA in the ABBA studio. Wow. <laughs> it was a, the ABBA ensemble minus Ben. Was it the, like um, its own universe, like with people like Prince? Was it just the self-encapsulated? Yeah, very much of, so. Yeah. yeah. And so I used the whole facility there with all the musicians and made Anjeta Felskog's uh, first solo album and had a big hit, Wrap Your Arms Around Me. Uh, after that, and then another one called the tide, uh, the tide is high, uh, the heat is on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, so that was a trippy experience, right in the middle of all the Blondie stuff I was doing. And then I was working with Bow Wow Wow in London here as well. And was that Adam Ant's band essentially? Was it yeah, the musicians it of was. that group? That, yeah, with and Annabella with Malcolm added. as well. Malcolm. So do you deal a lot with him? Yeah, I'm yeah. fascinated to hear about him because. He, for me, I mean, Sex Pistols is one of my all-time favorite groups ever, just yeah. because of the the impact and the, you know, the ferocious... Well, just, Malcolm was mad. and Yeah. Completely Total mad. Svengali in that old-school sense of the word, right? Kind of. Yeah, and it was like Malcolm was the kind of person that chucked it against the wall. If it stuck, it stuck. If it didn't, he didn't give a shit. Yeah. And... Like a pop art approach to music, really. Yeah, yeah. And, and just a bizarrely wild and crazy attitude to what pop music should be. He wanted it to be high energy, young, bizarre looking, stupid antics, crazy people in the bands. So he took Adam's aunts, stuck Annabella, who he found at the age of 14. Right. <laughs> immediately had her naked in, in the uh, promo shots, which created an awful lot of controversy. Imagine that. Well, it wouldn't happen. Now, no, you but, couldn't. I mean, no, he'd be put in prison. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Malcolm came to me. He said, uh, Mike, I've got to have you do this band. You're going to love Annabella. She's wonderful. And the, the guys are great. So I made an album with Bow Wow Wow at, at Island Studios. Uh, we had a couple of fairly decent hits. Do You Want to Hold Me was a, a pretty sizable hit. Was I Want Candy an original for that group? Or was it a cover? Oh, I was like a no, 60s girl group, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cover, and they had just done that so as a one-off single. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with a couple of guys in New York who had actually been involved in the early days of Blondie. And um, so I got, to, I got to make an album with Annabella, who was an absolute dream to work with. The band were totally nuts. Yeah. Destroyed the studio, caused so much damage. Drugs or just no, wildness? Just, just wildness, crazy, yeah, yeah, crazy kids, proper punks, 
<laughs> yeah, and I had made a lot of records at, at that point in time, a couple of years there at Island Studio at Basing Street. And uh, the associates were downstairs. I got to know Billy, the uh, main guy, Mackenzie, was it, from the associates? Oh, boy, they were good. Um, and uh, then I worked with a guy by the name of Simon Climey for Chrysalis, who turned out to be a big hit songwriter and now produces Eric Clapton's albums. Um, what did you perceive um, in terms of, the, I guess, the shift in the mid-'80s towards everyday people becoming pop stars, people like Rick Astley? And, you know, I guess that whole, yeah, like, I, Waterman I, and Aiken Yeah, approach. I was... Uh, what was your take on that? I I heard that music from America, the Kylie Minogue yeah. and the Rick Astley stuff, and I thought it was cute. I I, I liked it. it were good songs, good good pop records. Uh, what I didn't like was the the press at that point saying, "Oh, this is another manufactured pop sausage factory of pop records, like the Chinny Chap days." Right. There is nothing even closely resembling anything I wrote and produced in those early 70s with anything Stock There is nothing <laughs> no. you can... Other than the fact that you're churning out hits. Right. The process is and the only similarity. And that's how stupid the critics are, is yeah. they don't look at the music. They, They're both successful. Yeah. That's the same It's the same school. Yeah. Which really annoyed the hell out of me, because I listened to Stock Ake and Waterman, and I said, yeah, I like these records, but... I didn't make records like that. Yeah. I never made rec- I never wrote words like that. I'd have been embarrassed by that. I didn't write melodies like that because my head doesn't function like that. So we were totally different. Stock Aitken and Waterman were great at what they did. I was great at what I did. But don't compare these two things. They don't sound anything similar. There's nothing, nothing similar about either of those situations. So the frustrations of the press and the music industry they're a bunch of dickheads you know all of them amen fucking assholes uh tell me about simply the best got to ask about that haven't we yeah well i i i had that did you write that for tina originally no no i just i didn't write it for anybody really i was working with holly knight who was one of my songwriters who was signed to me and uh, i she had a band called spider that was signed to the dreamland records that went belly up and then Holly continued working with me after that from 1979 onwards and became really my only co-writer of note up to that date. And, and she and I were co-writers. I mean, she was musically gifted and I, I really enjoyed working with her because I felt like I could inspire her and she could inspire me. So it was a good songwriting team. A true partnership. Yeah, well... As much as it could be with me, because I'm a little bit overbearing in as much as I want my melodies there and I want my lyrics there. Well, what's left? You know, a few chords. She was able to put more than a few chords in there, and uh, and I had never had that in my life before. So, yeah, I could. And she was also signed to my publishing company for 10 years. So she was, she was an important artist to me. Are you, and she was sorry, writing songs for other people. And with other people. So, so she was on her own as a standalone. Absolutely. Talent. So yeah. she, it was a very different situation. And I looked at her as I was, had my publisher's hat on with her. And uh, she was a very important writer for my company. And then we wrote together 
when the time uh, when it was necessary. And I had had this title, the best that I told her about back in 1980 or 81. I said, we've got to write a song called The Best. And for two years, I didn't know what to do with it. I kept trying things and nothing worked. And then one day I came up with the whole chorus on my way to her place, got to her place, sat down, and we wrote the song in the next couple of days. So we had the song, then we went in and did the demo. Then we didn't know what to do with it. We just knew it was a great song. Uh, and there was no bridge in the song, no middle eight. It was just the rest of the tune. So she took it to Paul Young's manager. He was having hits at the time. And the manager said, well, it's a nice song, but it's not a hit. So we went, it's not a hit. Imagine listening to that and saying it's not a hit. Genius. Uh, and so then the song sat on the shelf for a year or so, and then Bonnie Tyler found it. Okay. And she cut it, still without a bridge, and she put it out, did a good version of it, and it was a, a moderate success in a few territories. And then it sat around again for a year or so. And at this point, you know that it hasn't fulfilled its true potential. Right. It, it's been rejected by this clever manager. <laughs> uh then it was cut by Bonnie Tyler and didn't make it. But I'm thinking, a great song is a great song. It'll find its level. And then my best friend and publisher in New York, in L.A., Billy Michelle, got it over to Roger Davies, Tina's manager. And when she heard it, she flipped out and said, i got to sing this song. She'd already had a big hit with another song of Holly's and mine, Better Be Good To Me, on the the um, uh, Private Dancer album. That was a top 10 hit for her in America and elsewhere. So, uh, and then I, she was in the Thunderdome movie and Holly had written a song on her own for the, the end credits of that movie and I produced that with Tina, the only time I actually worked with Tina. And so, you know, we were... Uh, we, Roger and Tina were always looking to us for, give us another one of those, better be good to me. Uh, so when they heard the best, she said, I gotta sing this song. And then she had us write a bridge for it, which we did, put the record out. And what was your response the first time you heard it? It's found its home. Well, the first time I heard the finished record, I was uh, absolutely thrilled because it was very close to the demo that we'd done. And whenever I sang on the demos for Tina, she would very astutely mimic all the ad-libs and things that I was doing, which were important to me to put them in there. And so she came back with this record, which was like a carbon copy of what I'd done, only sung properly. By Tina Turner. By Tina Turner, right? <laughs> so I was... Thinking, what a trip. Yeah, yeah. What, what's been, if you could single out one, and you probably can't because I guess it's like trying to choose your favourite child or something, but has there ever been a moment when you've heard one song that you've written played back to you by whoever it is and just gone, wow, and you've got like goosebumps or that spine tingling kind of... Yeah, I think as actually... going to get to magic. I think probably the only time that's ever really happened, unless I had made the record myself, it was somebody else had made the record. Uh, the only time that happened 
for sure was when I heard Tina's record of In Your Wildest Dreams, which was the third hit that Holly and I wrote for her. And, uh, and then she did a duet with my buddy Barry White on that. So that was quite a moment for me. When I heard that record, I, I got chills from that. I thought, that's beautiful. Yeah. She sang the ass off it. I don't know if you've ever seen videos of her doing that live, but you watch some of those. They're, they're hysterical with that big beefy guy with the saxophone. and It's like soft porn. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Barry White's music is like soft porn. See, yeah, it? yeah. And Tina's in many yeah, ways. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, that, that tune, I think, was certainly one of those moments where I heard something back and thought, nice job. Well done. Even like going back to the early 80s, Pat Benatar, which was another act that Chrysalis came to me with, and they said, we've signed this kid, Pat Benatar. She's an opera singer. I said, well, that's clever of you. Was that her background, was it? Yeah. Wow. I said, what does she do? They said, well, she sings opera. I said, well, that's really smart. Why are you signing opera singer? Well, she's cute. And I said, okay. They showed me a picture. They said, but we, we need you to get the project off the ground she doesn't have a band can you help to put a band together and will you produce the first album and i said well i'll meet her and see what happens so i met her and then she was really cool i loved her and this is when i was making eat to the beat yeah, yeah. album with yeah. blondie in new york as well and uh, uh auditioned a bunch of musicians put the band together and then went into the studio in LA six months later and uh, cut a couple of my smoky songs with her. I did a version of You Think You Know How to Love Me. You didn't work with her on Give Me Your or Hit Me With Your Best Shot. That was that was done right after I stepped out of the picture. Right. Because I, I cut four tracks on that album, I think, and then left the rest of the production to Peter Coleman, my engineer. I was trying to get him to be a producer. And I was busy with the Blondies and other things. So. I love that you call them the Blondies, by the way. Oh, <laughs> that's what they are, right? <laughs> so, uh, so he took over as producer, and then after that, they moved to a different producer, and he did hit me with your best shot. Um, but then Holly and I wrote Love is a Battlefield for Pat. And I have to say that the reverse of... What happened to me within your wildest dreams happened with that. When I heard, because I had done a demo of Love is a Battlefield that I loved, and it had a different vibe from the record. And when they played me Pat's version of Love is a Battlefield, Holly and I listened to it together. I looked at her, I said, Ugh, what they done? They fucked it up. And Holly said, I hate it. And I said, me too. Neither of us liked that record. Because it was so, it was, there were elements that were the same, but they'd taken the, the, they'd changed the groove and they'd made it more sort of ditzy or something. I love it now. I love it now. But and I guess if you don't, as a listener, have the point of comparison, all you know is that. No, exactly. No, you don't have that same sense of confliction. But I was, I was so locked into my demo yeah, of yeah. that tune and the passion that I'd been able to pump out in that demo that, her version of it just left me cold. And I even called my buddies at Chrysalis and I said, oh, guys, I, I, I don't like to say this, but 
I really don't like what you've done with Love is a Battlefield. They said, Mike, please, it's great. Believe us, it, we'll make it work. Okay. And um, of course, they were right. I was completely wrong. And um, over the years, and then they made that goofy but iconic video of <laughs> Love is a Battlefield. Have you ever thought about trying to approach someone else with the song and see if they take it in a different direction? With a song? With that song. Oh, with the, that or, song? Or is it just that's in the locker, it's in the past? No. Uh, I've done a bit of everything. I've never done that, though. Uh, I, it, You know, it's, uh, it, it's, it, I think it's hard when you're a songwriter and, and you're also a record producer. And you write a song and then you produce a demo, which is sort of like making a record anyway. And I'm capable enough singer to be able to get the message across. So I, I was happy with the vocal I'd done on that and the presentation of the song and the emotions. I think it's just very difficult to have somebody take a completely different point of view. I'll bet. I, I imagine it's like if you're a novelist and someone adapts your book into a film. Yes, uh, I'm sure and it's exactly Anthony the same. Anthony Burgess hated, although the film is incredible, and it truly is. Right. Anthony Burgess hated Kubrick's version of Clockwork Orange. Right. Because it wasn't anywhere near his vision of that. And I think that's, that's what head. happened. There. Yeah. And, and I, I, I guess that's happened a few times with, uh, with tunes of mine. That's why I, I tended, if I had written a song that I thought was a hit, I wanted to produce it myself. You know? yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. want to give this to somebody else and let them fuck it up. You know? It's very selfish, but... Uh, uh, it worked most of the time. I guess it fucked up a few. Um, but, I, you know, I, ha I still have that same passion, um, that same attitude now, uh, probably more so uh, because I'm confronted by um, a music industry that I find appallingly distasteful. Artists who are disgustingly um, unappreciative. Don't hold back, Mike. Tell us what you really think. <laughs> millennials who haven't got a fucking clue what they're doing and think they're entitled to everything in the world, who have no respect for people from the past, even five years before their precious little lives began. So... I think the dilemma that I'm faced with now is a much greater one, is that I don't like the people in the business now. So even if they changed my songs now and I liked it, I wouldn't say I liked it because I wouldn't like them. Yeah. Um, I think the personalities of people are sort of like the computers they make their music Well, on. there are none, and I'll agree with you because I had a conversation with my mate last night, actually, and he was playing XTC Making Plans for Nigel, and that's just one example of one song that is so incredible and quirky and perfect. And I said, name me one song in the last 10 years that's as good as that one song. And that's yeah. just a random yeah. song from the 80s in which there were songs like that being churned out every week mm. by all these amazing bands, yeah. like The Police, like everything. Yeah. And I agree with you on that front, is mm. that pop music, I mean, there's still great music, underground music still exists in kind of a, oh, a varied and exciting but format. It's but not pop the music, music that we are, that we're getting offered. No. Pop music is garbage nowadays. Absolutely, it's garbage. dreadful. It's uh, and and I and, and 
And sometimes I think, oh, Mike, you're just getting old, man. You, you, you can't think like this. But And I'll take another listen and I'll go, no, I'm not no, getting it is old. just shit. It is shit. <laughs> and I think it's the... It, it's the, I'm only 32 and I feel that way. Yeah, well, it comes from the personalities of the artists who are making it. They're all so fucking caught up in taking fucking selfies. Can we get a selfie at the end of this interview? Ugh. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> but... You know, put the fucking phone down. Think about, are you in this business to make music or are you in this business to to be be rich and famous and and, and a celebrity? Yeah. If you are, I want nothing to do with you. I guess the birth of that as well was the reality television shows like Pop Idol and X Factor. And that was maybe the the turning point in which you just be famous. It all sort of started to happen at the same time. Yeah, Um, with with the internet and yeah. Yeah, and Simon Cowell, uh, who is great at what he does, yeah. I, I find what he does to be some of the most disgustingly awful crap that I've ever seen in my life. I Those found his shows, trouser line offensive as well. No, I, I don't have long. anything against him. I, 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 <laughs> or his trouser line. <laughs> yeah, or his trouser line. I think he's a fucking genius Yeah, doing what, what he's does. doing. Yeah. But what he does, but it's what he's being. done to this business. Probably without any he's malicious not, intent. Yes, yeah, he's yeah. not. He's not trying to destroy the business, mm. but he has single-handedly reduced the quality of this business by about ninety percent. And what he's offered us in return for our uh, for our uh, lack of great music is. These celebrities, these personalities, I don't give a fuck about these dickheads. I don't care about these little puny idiots that win these fucking stupid shows. They're not making music. They're fucking boneheads, a lot of them. They can't sing. They look like idiots. All they do is take fucking pictures of themselves, and I'm sick to death of the whole thing. Stop doing it, for God's sake. Simon, take a break for 10 years or something, you know? That would be my advice, is let the business get back to the music, you know? Let's take it away from these TV shows. And, and it, it's an error. He's done great. And I, I, it, all, more power to him for that. I, I would like to be that successful myself, you know, in what I do. He's, he, he, he's a genius at that. But he's fucked up the music business. And that, along with... No more record sales and this idiotic streaming concept where nobody actually owns a record anymore and they don't even understand the concept of owning a record, the value of owning a record. Along with that has come this endless stream of kids in their bedrooms with their fucking laptops making this boring, banal music with fucking loops and beats and Everybody sounds as stupid as each other. Stop this nonsense. Please, come on. You know, we need, we need a new fucking band with an attitude to come and kick everybody in the ass. You know, some, some of that great indie rock that's out there that we never get to hear. Let's hear it. We need to hear it. You know, all these kids and bands, they're not getting a showing anymore because... Radio and... and uh, well, that's the other thing, isn't it? Is radio and print media are also both dying out as well. So there's yeah. not the same platforms that there once was for exposure. And, and, and kids are so plugged into Spotify and, and 
using the power of this this telephone here. It's supposed to be a phone. Yeah. You're supposed to call people on it. No. Do you remember the days when people used to phone? call each other on phones? <laughs> now we've even got leaders of nations using this to run their... Yeah, it's cr- that's mental. Here's something I want to ask you about. The television and film industry, for me, is as thriving now as it's ever been. Ooh. And what that industry has somehow managed to do is go on to streaming services and kill it in that platform, but people still will pay... 18 to 20 pounds to go see a film at the cinema. Right. They'll still have their subscriptions to these various. Right. Things. I thought about and, that just the other day. They've basically become in house production companies, haven't yeah, they? Yeah, they have. And what Spotify don't do, which is what they fucking should do, is yes. use the money that they make to invest back in artists yeah. to produce and nurture and develop talent. And that's actually what the TV and film industry has shown the leading And they're doing and a beautiful it. job of it really, and, really and giving work. us more great. Uh, I hate movies. the word, but content, if you want no, to No, it's great yeah. content. They're giving us more great content than we've ever been offered before. Yep. And and the integrity of the movie industry has not gone down. No. It's gone up. Yep. It's adapted and thrived in the times we're in. And there are more great actors now than there ever were before. Television's better than it's ever been. TV shows, A the budget. A thousand times better. You've got Sean Penn on ITV. Other, I was like, what the hell is it? Sean Penn's on ITV. Yeah. How about that, right? <laughs> yeah. But what happened to the music industry? You know, it's like how what did we did fuck it up? It? How 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 and why did they? Don't ask me. I didn't do it. You know, I've I've been working hard. I I've been trying to make great records for. <laughs> what for what years. did they not do then? What did they do wrong? Because they did fuck it up, didn't they? Someone did. It happened somehow. Streaming services, particularly, I'm talking about. Forget Cowl and Xbox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that that's another separate sort of issue uh the streaming so i guess basically they just don't pay the artists do they they don't value music so therefore the consumers don't uh, the performing rights society prs and ascap and bmi and all these uh organizations are fighting like hell for us writers for our rights uh and people like youtube are taking advantage of us uh, YouTube will not put their hands in their pockets and give up any of the billions of dollars they're making to the people who create the music. Yep. So, yes, it's going wrong in that fashion. And until we get rid of these monsters who run those kind of companies who don't give a flying fuck about the artist. Or the consumer, even. No, because yeah, the consumer just well, gets free stuff. They don't care either. Yeah, and the consumer gets so much dumped out on them now that it's hard for them to even discern what's good and what's bad. Yep. Uh, and so we're left at the mercy of these uh, these companies. And how do you fight against that in a digital world? Uh, it's it's very difficult. And as I was saying, the concept of owning music. Well, here's another crazy concept. Someone will go into a, a Starbucks. There are other coffee shops available, and will pay three pounds, say, for a coffee, right? So they do that twice in a day, that's £6. Nowadays, you can buy pretty much any album for £6, yeah. either from a shop or yeah. on eBay or on iTunes. Yeah. So you'd rather just spend that money on two coffees that is gone like that than something that you own and have for about the that, entirety huh? of your existence what a concept. that's going to inspire you, change right. your life. What a concept. That's fucked up. That is fucked up. And yet it used to be an album was like 15 bucks yep. and a coffee was 50 cents. Yep, yep. That made sense. You can, you know, have a couple of coffees in the day. Uh, you know, invest your money 
in something that you're going to be able to hold in your hand. And, uh, and other than forever a cup of and enjoy forever. Yes, exactly. So we've taken some of the artistic content out of music, the album covers, the artwork, the, uh, the album cover notes. Um, we've stripped it down to its barest possible form, where it's just naked music now. Nothing to go along with it. We're presented with artists who are not real artists, their voices are doctored by computers to the point where, and their f- physical appearance is done the same. So we don't really know what they look like. We have no idea what they sound like. They sound like the computer they came out of. The songs are being written not by songwriters. They're being written by these so-called producers who have a laptop and a bunch of samples and a bunch of shit, and they throw it all together they put up the latest hit on a track and they copy that and then they change it a little bit and there's the next track. Yep. I know how they do it. It's bullshit. There's no creative energy in it. There's no, there's no talent involved in doing that. So where do we go from here? I think we just got to go further and further down into the sewer yep. until, we reach, until yeah. we reach a point of no return. Yep. Until the general public is fired up by something that tells them... Or fed up, at least. If not fired up, at least fed right, up. Right, yeah. or fed up with it. But if, if, if some or a number of artists were, had the ability to present their music in a way that didn't fit this current format and make people appreciate something that's unique and exciting and fresh and young, and I'm talking about kids, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. like... Teenagers, yeah. early twenties, with some with some energy and some uh, some creative lyrical sense, write songs about something interesting and weird, and yeah, yeah. why not, right? And uh, I mean, I listen to these these current artists, Ariana Grande, right? Like, I mean, I can't understand a fucking word the girl sings. <laughs> I can't understand a word she sings. Do I remember any songs that she's had a hundred hits or something? I couldn't sing one note of any of them because they're not songs. They're just notes put together over tracks that are so easily assembled. Anybody can do that. Why? Why do that when there's so many talented kids out there who just need an opportunity to, to have their music played who not only can make great records, but they can go on a stage and give a great performance as well without all the bells and whistles. No, I'm sure Ariana Grande, yeah, Ariana goes on stage. It's all fucking smoke and mirrors, right? All you're hearing is something off a computer and her like jigging around up there like a bonehead. (laughs) I mean, please, you know. She, I don't I begrudge her her success. She could be successful, but, but and Ed Sheeran, oh my God, please, you know. <laughs> I've just come up with a genius idea for a new TV show. Well, not a new TV show, it exists, Gogglebox. But it's you and Maddie sat on this couch watch, uh, watching, sorry, I'm yeah. getting a bit drunk now, yeah. <laughs> watching contemporary music videos by contemporary artists and just having you comment on it. I tell you, that, it that, wouldn't be, that's your new YouTube show. It wouldn't show. be pretty. <laughs> yeah, but it would be funny. That. Um, that segues in perfectly into the podcast, which you two have been chatting about for a while. Yeah. Let's talk about that. 
yeah. uh, to wrap things up and yeah, well, um, we, bring it home. The we, Maddie and, or is it the Mike, Mike and Maddie, and Maddie on? show? The Mike and so Maddie Mike show. has to go first. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> it just has a better He's getting his own it. back. <laughs> no, Take that, Nicky Chin. I'm just that. joking. No, it's it is. It is. Baby. Mike and Maddie rolls off the tongue easier it than does. Maddie and Mike. Yeah, the Mike and Maddie show. Uh, we started putting this podcast together about a year and a half ago, and we've been <laughs> changing it and reassembling it and, and trying to figure out what what is it we want to accomplish with this. And basically, we just get into my studio, the two of us, on one mic, and we just we get a little wasted, and we have a format a little. now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we have a format, and we chat, right? Uh-huh. Get involved now, Maddie. Oh, hello. So... <laughs> this is Maddie for everyone listening, who's my old and dear friend oh, and Mike's partner and co-host on the, yes. the Mike and Maddie show. So yep. is there is there any uh, pre-planning before you go in? Is there any sort of list of topics where you literally just get in there and wax lyrical? Yes, how much freestyle? vodka is left? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are, we out of, are we out of scotch? Or? <laughs> no, when we started this, we started recording this at Fortress Studios, where Mike Which is studio. where you two met, right? Yeah, yeah. where yeah. we met and we've been friends, you know, working, it was friends together for like eight years. And we just, I'd just go sit in the studio and we'd get a bit, get a bit red. A little wasted. A little yeah. wasted. And we'd just chat about anything and everything. Yeah. And then as we've gone through the archives, as we call them, um, recently we've discovered. So what you actually have is a really unique position because most people who start a podcast record something, they might wait a while, but most of the material is fairly fresh and of the moment yeah. whereas what you actually have is almost like the Ricky Gervais podcast it's like an archive of, oh god it's, yeah it's like track after track of when did we do we've that we've forgotten more than we've even found yeah. there's stuff in there like delving through and you listen to it you go oh my god as if I said that and we're slurring away but we just had such a laugh doing it it's only recently that we've actually put together a bit of a format with it and there's going to be um, a lot of mics or demos in there what yeah. he talks about on this show yeah um, coming he's up telling stories and lots of funny stories lots of crazy stories about and then and, but we'll, we, we will also be does he hold anything back when he's talking about the wild days in front of you as well no 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 no, we're, no, <laughs> no, we're, no we're, I find it all hilarious so did you ever have any relationships <laughs> with any of your artists Mike so anyway, the uh, <laughs> so yeah, the Mike and Matty show. Mike and Matty show. Let's get back on track here. The uh, Mike and Matty show. Uh, we're, we're hoping to have our first uh, episode out there uh, very soon. We keep saying that. I mean, we're trimming away. What's holding you back? Uh, it, just um, like we go in to do a bit more, and when we feel in the right mood, and then usually I'll come out and say. Is it you being Maddie, too much of a perfectionist? I don't, yeah, yeah, I don't like what I did yesterday. He's too overly critical, and, and I've got to st- I got to stop doing that because the best bits. Maybe Maddie when... needs to take producer. Yeah, kind of I no, I, so. I let her. No, I, I, she's to an extent with the creative no, element she, of like let's put it out now. As far as I'm concerned, she can do all that because I'm, I'm not that good at doing that part of it. Um, but we're close to the first show. Um, I think a lot of it is like the. A lot of the gems that we did in the past, we were just so wasted that we didn't give a shit. Yeah, and we weren't actually putting stuff together. We were just sitting in front of a mic and chatting and recording without the idea without, of it even going out we, anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and now we come to actually do it. Um, You're going. Oh, can we'll, we put that? We'll out? happily play all the like, like put up all the yeah. old stuff. But when it comes to stuff like me and him, after we've only had two glasses of wine. You're much more self-aware of what you're okay. saying and how yeah, you're yeah, across. Yeah. So maybe we need to get absolutely wasted. And I've also been going through some 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 very troubling um, uh, situations in my 
professional world with some of the artists that I'm working with, uh, who are millennials, and uh, trying, <laughs> surprise, to surprise. trying to deal with, well, do they have to be? Because that's the age group, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I'm trying to deal with today's attitudes, and I'm having a bit of a problem with it. And, I'm, and so that has taken up a lot of time over yeah. the last six or nine and, months. And probably energy. Yes, it, yeah. it is, because I get exhausted from trying to reason with people who don't even think the same way I do. Uh, yeah, the last thing you want to do is sit sit there after a day of having to deal with that. I mean, you sit and try yeah. and do something. So it's all we're very off the cuff with it. It's as and when we feel. But inspired. I've got but I've got a new project with a brand new uh, young girl, very young girl, fifteen years old from Hull. Whoop whoop. Yeah, and uh, which is where Maddie's from. Uh, Did you meet her through Maddie, or is that just a uh, basically yes through Maddie's dad, Johnny right, right. Pat, who is a legend in that area. Hi, Dad. And um, <laughs> and so he had a talent night at a bingo bar or whatever you call it. <laughs> Working Men's Club. Working I couldn't Club. get more Phoenix Knights, could it? <laughs> yeah. With so all due Phoenix respect. <laughs> and uh, and one of the acts he brought on was this fourteen-year-old girl whose whose name is Rio Liana, and she got up there with her dad playing a track on her laptop, sitting on the edge of the stage. Amazing. And she belted. What, three songs? Yeah. Three songs. And I'm sitting there, my jaw dropped, and I'm thinking, have I been drinking too much or something? Or is this girl really that good? And when was the last time you felt like that just off a oh, random... Oh, God. God. Uh, uh, a uh, long time ago, eons right? Eons ago. Yeah. yeah, eons ago. Uh, this girl is is a real deal. She's she's extraordinary. Uh, she's now 15. This was a year, just over a year mm. ago, we saw first saw her. And uh, I've done some demos with her now with a live band with some of the best players in town. You didn't think about using computer loops? <laughs> yeah. Not for one moment. <laughs> now, my approach with Rio is to actually enjoy making music again. I, I, I'm not going to use those computers. I am. Play- she is the real deal. Uh, this is not a girl who's going to be sitting around taking selfies all day. This is a girl who's going to be sitting around thinking about how well can I sing this next song. Um, she's very young. She's very smart. She's wonderful. She's uh, the nicest girl yeah, she's you've terrific. ever met. Her she's family so is nice. wonderful too. Yeah. Nice people. And, uh, and I'm very excited about the prospect of what's coming up over the next six months with Rio. I think this is actually an opportunity for me to prove a point, uh, to get back to the basics of making great pop music with somebody who can sing their ass off, um, um, let me take the role of doing some of the writing, doing all the production. Would you ever be a manager? Would you ever? No, no. no I'd you'd be never... the worst manager in the world. I'd, <laughs> the, why, why do you think so? I'd, I'd fire every act I had the second day I was working with them. I hate them. I hate all these people. <laughs> I, I love them if I don't have to be their manager, you right. know? But when I have to be so involved in their personal lives, as I always become, it's exhausting. And I'm right. just not cut out for that. Yeah, yeah. You want um, to just create and then... I just want to be creative. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I want somebody else to do the dirty work. You know, I want to do the pretty work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I want to, I want to make the music and, and, and just be creative in the studio and this kid this rio is uh she's dynamite and uh she's uh i think she's going to be massively successful uh not think actually i know she will be and i 
hope it's with my help uh, because if I fail, somebody else will succeed with her. She's that good. So um, it's it's down to her, really. Not This is not my show. It's her show. I just want to give her the right uh, uh, background to the right music to sing to, uh, the right songs to sing, and develop her career. I mean, she's 15 years old. Good God. You know, by the time she's 18, she'll be one of the best in the business. So I'm excited about that. And uh, and I need, I really need that now because I'm ready to go fishing. You know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, how does Maddie feel about that? Do you fishing. like fishing? Yeah. Um, Are you no, in? You can go catch the fish whilst I sunbathe <laughs> right, right, and then right. we'll cook it for so dinner. you're happy with that, I'm Jill. absolutely fine, yeah. <laughs> he can sit on the boat and I'll have a sunbathe. There you it go. suits me perfectly. <laughs> uh, guys, thanks so much for both your hospitality. Oh, thank you. Mike, thanks welcome. for the sharing the stories. Yes, and, my pleasure. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I, 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 I had feel a, a little wasted got, myself now. Yeah, I got a little hot under the collar at one point there, but then I... Well, maybe a couple, but that's what we want. That's what we want, honesty. We touch on those subjects and I do get a little irritated irrational um no i don't think my passion my passion is there i i am passionate about what i do i know i'm a good songwriter i know i'm a good record producer i've proved it time and time again i just want to continue to be that and i want to make more hits i want to write more hit songs um purely and simply because i love doing it i think you should work with miley cyrus miley cyrus i think you should honestly i'm not joking so there's there's a tribute to chris cornell from Soundgarden in Los Angeles the other week. And it mm. was a collection of, you know, every rock performer from mm-hmm. Geezer Butler from Black Sabbath to the Metallica guys, Dave Grohl, etc. But Miley Cyrus came out and sung a Soundgarden song mm. with uh, the Audio Slave guys with Tom Morello. Oh, yeah. And it was insane. We'll she's find good. it. And we'll she's it she's really good. No, yeah. she's good. I just heard what she just did. And she's did got with, attitude and she's well, got she's originality. Got a country track out there she did with Mark Ronson that's, that's yeah. pretty cool. Um, she's done some stuff with Joan no, Jett. No, no, I've, I've, I, I, that's what you need. Is no, you I'm a just... fan of hers, but but she came along before this current crop of yes. idiots, right? A crop of shit. A crop of shit. Yeah, I mean, I like Britney Spears. I like Christina Aguilera. Christina even. Aguilera is amazing. Yeah, no, I can I can handle those artists. It's just this latest crop that just make me gag, you know. And uh, because there's no music contained in the product there. The last two years have been the worst, and it's getting worse. So there you go. So watch out. <laughs> yeah, and, and but I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing, and uh, Rio Leanna hopefully will be the beneficiary of my hardest work ever in my life. Amazing. I have two final questions for you. Number one, after this is done, can I please hear the Simply the Best demo if you haven't? Yes, of course. (laughs) And number two, if you had to get buried and go to the, you know, the the earth with one song that you've ever written in your career as a testament, or even if the moon was going to, you know, inhabit a new Mm -hmm. species and they could select one song, but only one song from your discography. I think it'd be the 16s, one of the lesser hits I had with the suite back in 1975. A song called the Sixteens, um, because I think I, I think I reached my peak of writing songs for the Sweet with that song, although it wasn't a big hit. Uh, that was my proudest moment conceptually for them. So that's the song I would take there. There's a 
50 others that I put in the other bag, but that's the best one. That's the one. Thanks, Mandy. You're the best. Mike, put it there. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, Matt. Pleasure. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.